a seat. And please turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, page 928 of the Bibles. And inside your service sheet, I think, is an outline of where we're going to be heading as we look at that passage together. Jonah chapter 4, page 928. As I've uh, looked and prepared uh, Jonah over recent weeks, both uh, for Sundays and also uh, the small groups that have been uh, looking at it uh, together, one thing has uh, come to me again and again, and that is that the message of the Gospel is spectacular. Uh, Once you've seen it clearly, your life is changed forever. It's a Gospel that has sparked thousands upon thousands of songs and poems and books and acts. To see the gospel in all its splendour, to see Jesus as Lord and Saviour is a remarkable thing, is it not? That's why we've sung tonight. But what we've also seen is this gospel, just like the God who speaks it, is not safe. Uh, The more you listen to this gospel, the more you respond to this gospel, it's going to mean change. Every time we hear the gospel, we're hearing things that we don't yet believe We hear it and it shakes views that we cherish. We hear it and it loosens our grip on things that are doing us no good. We hear it and it challenges us to do things that we don't yet do. The gospel, just like the God who speaks it, is not safe. In fact, the more we see what God is like in the gospel, the the more we grasp how different from God we really are and what a challenge it's going to be to follow the God of this gospel. That's what this book has been all about. This story of Jonah is the story of a man who knows God. He knows what God is like. He knows his nature. But as he starts to see that nature in practice, in full flight, that's when the problems start. Last week in Jonah chapter 3, we saw really the, the big moment of the story of Jonah, the rescue of an entire city. Nineveh cried out to a man and a woman and even the cows to God, and he delivered them. It was the third time we'd seen this same thing happen in the book. The sailors back in chapter 1 cried out to God from the storm and were rescued. Jonah cried out to God from the belly of a whale and he was rescued. And now a whole city in chapter 3. God's compassionate grace is all over the pages of this story. It's impossible to miss it. It's grace that uh, should have us singing a a fresh round of songs as we see it again in chapter 3, this dominant theme. But then you turn to Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 and you read this. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. What? What? I mean, surely uh, it's a misprint. Surely it should have read, and Jonah was greatly pleased and rejoiced in the Lord. But no. Well, it's hard to understand these words, isn't it? No matter how many times you've read them, especially when they come from God's prophet. How can he say it? Just back in chapter 2, he was praising God for his grace and he was lamenting that anyone would forgo it. But now as he sees a city before him grasp hold of this grace, he is cross. And here at last we have a full picture of the events that started back in chapter 1. Do you remember it? When God called him to go to this city with this message and he ran. 
far as he could away. It wasn't that Jonah feared uh, failure in his mission or, or felt inadequate for the job. No, take this in. Jonah didn't go to Nineveh because he knew God was full of mercy and compassion. I mean, he did eventually go, didn't he? It took a while and it took extraordinary circumstances, but now that his original fears concerning Nineveh's survival have been realised, he is furious. As Jonah looks over a city that is repenting, he sees not a, not a disaster that's been averted, but a disaster happening. How could God let this happen? Jonah just knew God would do something like this. In fact, he knows quite a lot about God. And we've seen that all the way through the book, haven't we? And now it's writ large for us here in verse 2 of chapter 4. I knew this, God. I knew that you are gracious and compassionate. I just knew that you'd be slow to anger and abounding in love, that you're a God who relents from sending calamity. I just knew it. It's an amazing description of our God, isn't it? He's obviously been reading his Bible again and again. The scriptures declare that this is who our God, this is his very glory writ large before us. I just knew you were like this. This is what I feared all along. That that Nineveh would repent and you'd respond with graciousness. That you'd go all soft-hearted with them. That you'd take too long to bring your rightful anger about that you'd just wait and wait and wait. That you'd love them. Even though they're faithless, you'd forgive them. I just knew it. Do you see Jonah's problem? He has a problem with God's love. Jonah's problem is that God's love is so loyal, so patient, that it endures forever. That this king tide of God's grace that we saw last week has burst the banks of his people, Israel, and is now spreading over Nineveh of all people. I just knew it. Let me ask you this. Can you imagine someone for whom God's love is a problem? Can you imagine that? And sure, it's easy to imagine someone who might struggle with God's sovereignty, his total power and control over all things, or perhaps even his judgment. But his love, his grace? I reckon everything that we've looked at in this story has led up to this moment. This question. As you see, at first glance, uh, we look at his reaction uh, here in Jonah 4 and we can't believe it. He's, he's so extreme, he's so out there. How could anyone react like this? But the more you see his reaction, the longer you look at it, the more you see that God is indeed putting his finger where we are most sensitive Placing his finger where wounds or prejudices or misconceptions have all too often twisted our joy in his grace. All too often causing us resentment or at least a, a failure to long for that grace to reach beyond our comfort zone. And so let me challenge you tonight. Don't let us slip too quickly out from under the microscope of God's word here. So let us ask the question again of ourselves. Can you imagine having a problem with God's love. Can you imagine that? Well, let me ask you this. Is there not a problem when we see God love our enemies? I mean, that's where Jonah feels aggrieved. 
Nineveh was the capital of a brutal empire, Assyria. Uh, In the book of Nahum, when it's speaking of uh, Jonah's own people, it says, who has not felt their endless cruelty? That's who God's forgiving here, people who are endlessly cruel to Jonah's people. Jonah's problem was that God was so quick to show his love and compassion to people who have none. Grace should come slower, if at all, to people like this. There should be a cost. There should be steps in place before they're forgiven. There should be justice. But to demand strict justice of God is a dangerous game, isn't it? Listen to these words from another era of another cruel power, Nazi Germany under Hitler. Listen to these words from Dorothy L. Sayers answering the same sort of question. Why doesn't God just smite the dictator dead? Is a question a little remote from us. Why, madam, did he not strike you dumb and imbecile before you uttered that baseless and unkind slander the day before yesterday? Or me, before I behaved with such a cruel lack of consideration to that well-meaning friend? And why, sir, did he not cause your hand to rot off at the wrist before you signed your name to that dirty little piece of financial trickery? You did not quite mean that? But why not? Your misdeeds and mine are nonetheless repellent just because our opportunities for doing damage are less spectacular. Do you suggest that your doings and mine are too trivial for God to bother about? Well, that cuts both ways. For in that case, it would matter precious little to his creation if he wiped both of us out tomorrow. Is there not a problem when we see God love our enemies? But here's the thing, I think it's easy to theorise about the problem of God loving our enemies when we keep it at the level of Nineveh or Hitler. But what of the personal cruelties we've experienced? What of those personal deep ravines of damage, of hurt that have been caused by another? And when I ask that question, there'll be people here tonight who know exactly what I'm talking about, who have deep unresolved hurts What if grace comes to that person in an instant as it did to Nineveh? What if there's no big fuss surrounding their forgiveness? What if nothing is asked of them in return? No cost, no punishment, no redressing of wrongs. What then? What if they stand next to you in the pew of a Sunday rejoicing in God's grace with you and calling you their brother? Surely there are moments when we would want grace to come slow, if at all, to some who show no grace themselves. And you see, we start to feel the challenge of God's abounding love. Well, let me ask you another question. Is there not a problem when we see God love the undeserving? After all, we know what a a good Christian is like and then there are the others. Those who who claim to be Christian but their behaviour betrays them again and again. Are there not people whose Christianity seems all a bit of a fraud Those who sing the songs and say the words and play the part, but you know what they did last night. Or you know how they treat their colleagues. Or you know they're sleeping with their boyfriend. Or you know they cruelly gossip. Are there not moments where you would like God to call their bluff? To trip them up in their own hypocrisy. Their presumption on his grace. Are there not moments where we would like to see some who are highly regarded exposed as grace fraudsters? while the rest of us have to work so hard for it. 
Let me ask you another question. Is there not a problem when we see God love the ignorant? That's how God describes Nineveh in verse 11. Uh, Is there not a problem when he loves people like that? Especially when they seem so confident in their ignorance, so caustic in their dismissal of the gospel. Now take, for example, the the popular atheist Christopher Hitchens, whose best-selling book is called this, God is Not Great. He's a man who tours the world arguing that the gospel has poisoned our world. Uh, Are there not moments when we wish God would step onto the stage with him and put him back in his box? Don't you sometimes hope that such a person would meet the logical end of their defiant ignorance of God? Can you imagine having a problem with God's love? Well, how about one more? Is there not a problem when we see God love the stranger? Well, surely it can't be right that uh, the Christian community, that our church family should be forever obsessing about those beyond our community. Surely such an approach is imbalanced. Surely there should be more focus on the faithful rather than the faithless. You ever felt like that? Are there not moments where we'd rather just get on with the business of loving one another within the church family? Aren't there moments where you wish more attention was focused on our needs? Surely the focus of care should be on those who have always served, always worked hard without so much of a mention. Are there not moments where you hear the call to go and show grace to others and you think, where's my grace? I reckon it's all too easy for us to leave Jonah's reaction right at the extreme and and sort of breathe a sigh of relief as we read Jonah 4 and think, at least I'm not like him. But step back, look at your heart Are there not moments when as much as we like to keep it under wraps that we too feel Jonah's displeasure at the path grace takes? If you felt like that, see the question that God asked Jonah and us us tonight in verse 4. Have you any right to be angry? God pushes Jonah. He says, don't just feel angry, Jonah. Look at it. Is it right? Do you have any right? There is such a thing as righteous anger. Uh, Is this it? Well, God's answer all the way through this story, I think, is an emphatic no and he's really given us two reasons. The first we've already seen in our previous travels through this story. All the way through Jonah 1 and 2, we see reason number one, we have no right and that is who Jonah is and who we are. He's a sinner saved by grace. We have no reason to be angry about God's grace. You see, all the reasons for my problem with God's love come back to accuse me. If I have a problem with him loving my enemies, I've forgotten that I was God's enemy and yet he showed me grace. And as for the cost to be paid by those who brought me pain, well, he pays it. And as for the steps to be taken before forgiveness comes, well, he walked them all the way up that hill to the cross. And as for justice, well, the court is adjourned. He takes the guilt. I walk free. I have no right to anger. I too am undeserving of his grace. Even now, years after my rescue, I'm that I am not a good Christian. And any sort of Pharisaic attitude which tells me I'm better than my brothers or sisters here is a foolish delusion, isn't it? What if God were to expose me at my worst? And as for the the ignorant who anger me with their books claiming that God is not good, 
Or do I not betray the same sentiment when I fail to trust him? When I go to other gods for satisfaction and security, fearing that God is not good enough for me. Have you any right to be angry, says God? What he does for us in the rest of Jonah chapter 4 is he gives us a second reason, not just who we are, but who he is. Have a look at verse 5. See Jonah's reaction to the question. He doesn't answer it, he just walks off in a huff. Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city and there he made himself a shelter. He sat in the shade and he waited to see what would happen to the city. Jonah's still hoping that Nineveh will be destroyed, that that God might see his sulking prophet up on the hill and change his mind. And so he builds himself this little shelter and in the end it proves fairly useless. And so verse 6, God provides a vine to shade him. This tree grows up over him to ease his discomfort. And do you see Jonah's response, verse 6? Well, he was very happy about the vine. All the displeasure is gone in an instant as he looks at this green, luscious growth above his head and thinks, this is perfect. And he's allowed to enjoy it for a while. But then begins the lesson that God has for him and for us. Before dawn, God does to the vine what Jonah wanted him to do to Nineveh. He provides a worm and the vine withers and droops before him. He provides a hot easterly wind to go with a scorching sun and all of a sudden, Jonah's pleasure pad turns into a sauna. The sort of the picture I have here is a British tourist on Bondi Beach at Christmas time. That's the sort of image you have of Jonah. You see it there in verse 8, the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. I wish I could just end it here. And so God questions him again. Same question, verse 9. And this time Jonah answers with passion. Of course I have a right to be angry. Very angry. I don't want to live in a world where things like this happen. This lovely vine, the horror of it. It was so nice and cool and green and perfect and pleasant to sit under. Who wants to live in a world where things like this happen? And Jonah is caught in God's trap. And now it is time for him and for us to see God's heart on these matters. Have a look at verse 10. Jonah, look at your anger. You're angry because you're sorry for this little vine. Even though you didn't tend it, you didn't cause it to grow, it it grew up overnight and it's died overnight. Jonah, your anger over this vine's demise is the same as your joy back in chapter 2 when I rescued you from the fish. It's all about you. If you feel this way about the vine, how do you think the gardener feels? The one who tended it, the one who caused it to grow. Think on that, Jonah, and then multiply it by 120,000. Because that's how many people are in Nineveh who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Should I not be concerned for that great city? A poet once said, I think I'll never see anything as lovely as a tree. But he's wrong. Very wrong. A tree, says God, who incidentally has made every single one we've ever seen, is nowhere near as beautiful or lovely or amazing or precious as a person, as a human who has been crowned with glory and honour, who is fearfully and wonderfully made in God's image. God says you feel compassion about the vine because you were there, weren't you, when it, when it first sprung up, when it flourished, 
Well, I was there, says God, when every single person in that city you sit above was born. I saw their first breath. I rejoiced over them as a father. I saw every step they took. I saw their joys and their fears and their talents and their quirks. I saw it all because they're mine. And then I saw them take glory and exchange it for shame. I saw them take truth and exchange it for a lie. I saw them take peace and exchange it for violence. I saw them, as a father sees a child, take every good gift that I ever gave them and screw it all up. I saw him leave his father's house and lock the door and throw away the key. I saw that, Jonah, 120,000 times and no, you don't get used to it. What father would? Tell me, Jonah, should I not be concerned about that great city? Well, that's where the book ends. We've seen two hearts revealed to us in this chapter, Jonah and God's. And my fear, my suspicion is that you and I are far more like Jonah than we'd like. Sitting in our shelters, waiting, watching to see what will happen, to see what will become of our great city. But God's heart is revealed to us in this story because he wants to blow our hearts apart. This story is his invitation to us. And what becomes obvious the more you look at Jonah 4 is it's just like another story God tells, his son tells in the New Testament, the story of the prodigal son. The story of, of the older son who watches his younger brother go off, leave his father, squander everything and then come back and is forgiven. The father invites the older brother to celebrate what has happened and here's what happens in Luke 15. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing and the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed you. You never gave me even a goat so much as to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered everything comes home, you kill the fattened calf and celebrate. The scary thing about both these stories is it's the insider, it's the one who knows their father God who can't cope. Jonah sits outside the city sulking, the elder brother sits outside the house indignant. Jonah rails in anger against God, the brother fumes at his father. God can't help but relent over Nineveh and the father can't help but run at the first sight of his son. If there was rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents, can you imagine the party that erupts when 120,000 come back home? I reckon God leaves this story open because, as I said, he is going for your heart. He is inviting you to have his heart for this city, which incidentally has over 500,000 people. God the Father stands at the edge of the property looking over the hill, looking for prodigals to come home as he did for you all those years ago. He he stands there knowing that his son has already prepared the way home, a way with no guilt, no fear, no shame, a way you walked home. And so God says in the book of Jonah, see my heart for your city, will you go? All the preparations have been made, it is time to send out the invites. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we see Jonah's declaration of who you are, your glorious nature, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Uh, Father, we are those who have tasted that nature and seen how good you are. Father, we would ask that by your spirit you would do a work in our hearts, that we would be a people uh, who are moved by you uh, to go to our city. Uh, We pray this for your honour. Amen.